Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got the wallet allocation rule, winning the battle for share. I've got Timothy Cunningham. I'm going to be calling him Tim because I'm a casual guy today. But uh, this is actually four author books. So I'll get uh, Tim to, you know, pronounce their names because I can't. And uh, let us know a little bit about what uh, what their participation was in the book. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Bob. I really appreciate it. Uh, as you said, I have uh, four, well, three co-authors with me. Uh, Lerzan Aksoy, she's a, a professor at Fordham University. Uh, Luke Williams, uh, who uh, was with me at Ipsos. And Alexander Buey, who's now a uh, professor at Fordham, but he used to be the head of analytics with me at Ipsos. And uh, all of us together were part of a team that discovered uh, what we call the wallet allocation rule. So that was uh, that was why we were all together on this book. Hmm. Now, the wallet allocation rule, let's just define that because it's such a fascinating idea. Um, and, and, you know, for the, the people listening in, Really, we've got a, a wallet and it's locked down with a chain and a padlock. And really, getting the money out of the consumer's wallet is tougher than it's ever been. Uh, so what is the wallet allocation rule? Well, the wallet allocation rule is actually a, a simple formula uh, that we discovered that can uh, uh, link customers' perceptions of the brands they use. So. Uh, so let's say they're how satisfied they are with the, the different brands they use and do a really good prediction of the way they divide their wallet among these competing brands. And that's actually a big deal because most of the measures we track by themselves. So let's say most firms track satisfaction or they may track uh, some form of rec- recommend intention uh, using something like the net promoter score, which you may have heard of. And those metrics are used to guide businesses uh, to say where they should focus their efforts and what customers really want. The problem is that uh, they do a terrible job of linking to how customers actually divide their spending. In fact, yeah, literally by knowing, if I know your satisfaction level, uh, I really can only know about 1%. I have only like 1% information on how you divide your wallet. 99% of the information, I have no idea what's going on. And that's been a real problem for businesses because, you know, they're, they're trying to, to improve their satisfaction or their net promoter score or whatever it is they're trying to, to use to gauge um, how well customers like them. And if you get that number wrong and if you actually are focusing on something that, uh, that where the score goes up and nothing else happens or people aren't giving you more spending, uh, the easiest thing for managers to do is say, this is all worthless customer experience stuff doesn't matter and then you end up with kind of uh, the Bloomberg Business Week story that came out last year uh, or I should say I guess it was December of 2013 uh, where they had proof that it pays to be America's most hated companies was the title of the article <laughs> and they, yeah they had all this stuff in there showing that they couldn't link satisfaction to to stock market performance uh, actually they could but it was negative they could show that Firms that did terrible in terms of their satisfaction were performing better than firms that were doing well. And, uh, yeah, it was hilarious. Um, Stephen Colbert even did a skit on it because it was so unexpected. Talking, uh, He offered his help on 
getting American corporations uh, customer satisfaction numbers right in the toilet, and then he gave all these hilarious suggestions. Uh, but yeah, it, it's what happens, you know, if you if you can't make things link up. And so we're big believers in in treating customers the way they uh, the way you would want to be treated. And uh, but you have to show how it's going to work, or you know, it's it just becomes a big guess and. If they're guessing, they'll they'll guess on something else. Well, you know, what's fascinating, because we're in, in the era of cheap big data. I mean, it used to be you could do big data, but it just cost you a fortune, uh, and you would take it way more seriously. Uh, do you think because there is so much data available to your, your average your corporation uh, and even smaller businesses uh, that they're not mining it accurately or they're mining it the wrong way or – they're just playing at it and not actually taking the data seriously. Um, I don't think that they're playing at it. Uh, the biggest problem with big data is well, there's several. Uh, big data is clearly here to stay, and it's it's an important part of the future. But uh, most big data is pretty bad, right? It's uh, it's messy data. It's never structured in a way that people can understand what it means. And, you, and it takes a lot of uh, a very skilled analyst to pull this stuff uh, together and in something that you can meaningfully uh, use for prediction. But they're pretty good at predicting things. Um, uh, you know, it, big data, just think, uh, you know, the Netflix recommendations you get. They're actually pretty good. But, uh, and they are able to do that across a bunch of people. And so you think, well, how is it that they're able to figure out what I do? They're even uh, able to kind of make their own movies based on what they think people should like just based on viewing habits. So that part's okay. Uh, the problem is they actually rarely, rarely understand why you do anything with just big data because big data is behaviorally on, behavioral only. And so you end up with these really dumb strategies sometimes because you don't understand why people are doing what they're doing. So the problem there is you know, you could be, you know, you can keep shopping at a place because you have no other alternative and really but would be willing to shop, spend more there. Big data will never help you understand that because if you're a good customer at one place, you're more likely to be a good customer at the competitor too. And, and that's something that people don't get. The big spenders tend to spend big in the category wherever they are, even if you're number three on the list. And you'll never get that through kind of, uh, social media marketing, big data, all these kind of fast-moving data about how your business moves because you end up making the wrong assumptions. Um, we have to ultimately come back and say, uh, how do you really feel about us and how do you feel about the competition and, and what is it that causes you to go for, you know, why aren't you buying everything from us, which would be, you know, there's you know, advantageous in terms of time for a customer, you know, why, why, why does a customer go to three grocery stores? I mean, nobody says, you know what, I am really bored today. Let's go to the grocery. Um, yet they still do it. And the reason is they're, they're obviously getting something that they can't get somewhere else or they feel they can't get somewhere else or because your time is your most valuable resource. I mean, we'd all rather, have, you know, our biggest complaints are always we don't have enough time to do what we want to do. Well, we certainly don't want to say, well, you know, I, I had that extra time and I spent it shopping. It's probably not the, it's probably not the way we think, or at least most of us think. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan of big data, but I'm not a, 
you know, I'm not a crazy person about any, any, any one thing. I think you have to go in and say, how are we doing? How's the competition doing? Why are you using things? And that's, that's a big part of what the wallet allocation rule gets to. It, uh, it, it forces you to think in a competitive context. You know, everybody measures things in a vacuum. Even big data is measured in a vacuum. How am I doing? How, you know, well, you know, do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Kind of thing. And it's like, of course they like you or they wouldn't buy from you at all unless they had no alternative. But they may like your competitor just as much or even more. And until you understand that and what that means to how they divide their spending, you're going to get the wrong answers all the time. Well, it, you know, it goes back to the, the old adage is, is being conscious of what's going on. And, and I think one of the biggest problems with big data um, is that people rely on it too heavily. And then they kind of get this bias, like you were saying, a, a biased approach, which has taken the human the human factor out. And really what they, the what I got out of is the wallet allocation is being much more conscious of, of who your uh, customer is and actually listening to them and changing policy or, or changing the way you do things so that they recognize that they, they have meaning uh, in their relationship instead of there's this big divide between the company and the customer. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things that drives me crazy. You know, everyone says that they care about the customer, they care about the customer, but the easiest way to, to tell how, uh, how successful you are in a big company is how far away from the customer you actually are. And, um, you know, they don't shop their own stores anymore. I mean, it's kind of at that level. And uh, we have to go in and really, you know, treat people as individuals, understand what they want uh, and, and deliver that to them instead of relying on these, you know, treating everyone like a number and actually using just, you know, numbers that most of us aren't even tracking. Because big data doesn't even come down into the organization. Uh, what I mean by that is, you can't get people to rally around a big data number. You know, it, all, it has to work in the background or, or in, in a kind of a decision support system. But can you imagine trying to tell the frontline employees, you know, you know, we have a statistical probability of X that these people will do Y if you do this. I mean, everybody's going to go, yeah, I'm not in. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you made a, a critical point there, uh, shopping in your own uh, environment and so you can actually see what's going on. And, and one of the biggest disconnects that I get, especially working with large organizations, is they say, oh, yeah, this is our big marketing plan. And it is not in alignment or they haven't bothered to talk to the people that are actually in the front line. And why they don't do this just boggles my mind. Why aren't they talking to the salespeople? Why are the salespeople frustrated? What are the type of questions the salespeople are getting? And then after listening to those guys – actually make some tools so the sales guys can go back and say, hey, you know, we've been listening to you. Look at all these great new changes. Helping the people that are actually on the front line communicate better with their uh, client demographic. Yeah, I, I, I find that always interesting. Before we design wallet allocation studies, uh, we want to go in and actually talk to the people on the front line because, as you said, they know so much of what's going on. And what you end up finding out is there's usually – um, again, senior management clearly is passionate about their business, but they think about it the wrong way. They think about their business all the time. They know everything about how their business is supposed to run. And so they get a distorted sense of what the customer should think about their business. The reality is, 
you know, unless you're in a really uh, sexy industry, uh, people aren't talking about your business all the time, and they're not thinking about your business all the time. They're thinking about it when they need to use it. The people that actually are going to be able to give you the feedback you need are either the end user, the customer, or the guys who actually deal with those customers. Because so, if you don't understand, if you don't have those two pieces aligned, you're never going to be able to make things happen. Because in the end, your your success uh, happens with those frontline people interacting with the customer. They're the face of the of the brand for the most part for almost all brands and um, if you get it wrong you know it's your lost sale and it's it's your image being wrong not only that you end up with a lot of frustrated employees because nobody wants to go to work and not be able to deliver mm. well I you know there's always been a huge disconnect between sales and Marcom marketing and communication which I found incredibly ironic and yet if that model exists there Imagine how disconnected C-suite is from the actual customer. It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, you look at a company like Ben & Jerry's, they've kind of got it together because everybody thinks, oh, Ben & Jerry, they're making ice cream for me because Ben & Jerry are crazy about ice cream just like I am. Very rare you have that type of relationship with other organizations. Well, they, they, they have a small business mentality, right? They never lost it. Um, that isn't usually how most companies run. Most companies are very most most of, the, most of the stuff we get in terms of our gross domestic product are big companies, right? If you look, you say you know eighty five percent of the GDP is run by uh, really big companies, and and that's understandable. Um, that it's not that the it's so so the, the 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 problem is the efficiencies you need to make a business work. So you get the cost low and you get the quality up, you get the distribution right. Well, that problem with managing that is, you, like you say, you become very disconnected because you're also probably managing lots of different things. I mean, even GE is now like going back to its core businesses and you know divesting because it was making aircraft engines and and doing financial services. I mean, it's a tough business to run, understanding what the customer wants when you are have such a broad group of customer needs and different products going through your uh, your corporation. So I sympathize with them, but at the same time, you know, you're going to have to get better. You still have to find a way to understand what your uh, what your end customer cares about and, and what it is that that causes them to come to you and what's causing them to also use the competition. Mm. Well, let's dig down a little bit into the book now. Um, is this the type of book that you can read cover to cover, or is it a book you can get jump around into a particular section you think you need covered? Um, well, the, the answer is it's designed to be uh, uh, an easy read. So if you actually were to sit down and read it, you could probably get done with it in a day. Uh, there's no, we didn't want it to be uh, you need a PhD in statistics kind of thing to read it. Um, my mom, my mom was the one that was my test case. You know, she's like, I, I, this is the first book I really understood, Tim. And, uh, which was great because we wanted it to feel like that. And, uh, you know, she's not into the, to the math, but she's into the stories and, uh, to how you'd really make it work. And what math that is in there is very easy to do. I mean, a sixth grader can do it. So we want it to be like that. Um, but can you jump around? Sure. We, but, uh, what we did f to make it easy for people is at the back, 
we actually, if you didn't even want to really go into anything, we put a quick start guide. If you wanted to use the wallet allocation rule and you didn't really want to read it, we thought it should feel kind of like a software manual in that sense. You know, who reads the actual manual? You always go to the four page. What do I actually have to do to, to up and run this thing? So um, we wanted it to be compelling. We wanted it to be a fun read. And uh, I think I think we did a decent job on that. But the uh, but we also recognize that uh, people also want to, many of our readers are going to want to just go, what's the nuts and bolts of what I need to do? And we wanted to make it easier for them to do that as well. So, um, yeah, you can, you don't have to go from, from end to end. But, you know, I'd like it if you did. But uh, this, the, the chapters stand on their own and they're designed to tell you what, what's going on in there. And in, in terms of the cases in there, we truly made those kind of pick and choose which ones fits your, your need. Just here's the title. Here's what it's about. And, uh, uh, you know, some of them are going to apply to you and some of them won't. But uh, it gives you a sense that it works everywhere. It's a very generalizable rule. Mm. Well, I, you know, and, and a lot of people that are, are pinched for time, for sure, they're going to jump into the back end and, and, and try and jumpstart this thing. But as soon as they jumpstart it and they start uh, getting into utilizing it as a, as, as a strategy or as a tool, then there's, oh, hang on. Now, now I understand why they don't, don't get and then go to that chapter, learn it, and then try to move forward. Uh, it's it's kind of a weird way you're doing it, but a lot of people, that's just the way they function. And I find it fascinating with a lot of business books is, no, you have to read it this particular way or it won't work for you. And that just cuts out a huge swath of people that just don't function that way. Yeah. Well, first of all, most readers actually don't make it through the end of a book. And that's so, and so we, have, we had to write it in a way that says you're going to get what you need you know, very quickly. Uh, and I mean, there's other pieces for strategy, as I think you said, because we, we felt the same way. You know, when, you, when you're doing the higher order strategy pieces, well, you're probably coming back to that chapter to get that because you're probably already starting off trying to figure out how to do it. And then you're going to say, okay, what do I need to do to uh, supercharge this as, I'm, as I've already got this thing up and running? Uh, we, again, I, my, my assumption is we have people jumping around, so you need a quick start guide. They probably have questions. We even put a whole set of FAQs in the back for all the questions that we've heard over time uh, with simple answers, just so that, that you have this question, here it is. You, know, you don't have to go hunting through the book. Here's the answer. Mm. Uh, the other thing that also stands out in this book, you've got this amazing acknowledgement section uh, at the back. And it's got all the people that participated, and there are a lot of people that you credit with helping make this book possible. Oh yeah, I, I, I hate people that say, you know, I'm so awesome <laughs> as if they, they're self-made, and I didn't want that feeling at all. You know, one of the things that I was very happy about was I could bring so many uh, great people along with me. I wanted them to get credit, and I wanted them, you know, I was like, send me your picture. I promise I'm going to make sure your picture gets in here in your bio. And, uh, you know, because there, most of these people aren't going to get a chance to write a book. Uh, and they're certainly, uh, uh, but without their help, I wouldn't be able to, to, to have this happen. And it's just the right thing to do. If you, if you say that you're in this business because you want to make the world a better place, which is kind of, the, which is the reason actually I got into this space. I wanted to get paid to tell people it's good business to be good to each other and to show them how to make it work. You know, if you're going to try to do that, then you better live it. And so, you know, it was funny because I had sent this out to several people to review it. And, and some of the guys uh, at some of the larger firms were like, take those names out. 
you know, don't do this. And I was like, there's just a 0% chance that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 I make sure that everybody gets, knows that I share credit, I take blame. It's kind of my rule. And I uh, definitely wanted to share credit here. Well, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about the book is you've used an incredible amount of um, data and actually illustrated the data so people can get it. Um, did you find that because you were trying to simplify it and, and make it so people could have aha moments all the way through the book that the illustrations were needed? I think you have to have illustrations because... As, as easy as the wallet allocation rule is mathematically, people still get scared of things, of numbers. And uh, it was funny, the, the, the introductory piece for the wallet allocation rule was actually put in the Harvard Business Review. And the editors there were actually a little concerned because of just because there was an equation there. And uh, so they actually put on the top of it, when they explain what the wallet allocation rule is, they say, don't let the math scare you. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Everybody who's reading this can easily do this math, but at the same time, that's pe- people. There are people that, that just don't want to think about the world that way, and, and and I'm fine with that. You know, many of us are very visual, and you know, I'd rather have a, a chart that explains something than a table of numbers any day. Yet my Alex Buey, our co-author, he hates charts. He would rather have the table of numbers every day. So we wanted to have a balance, and uh, so that. You know, everybody can say, "Okay, uh, if you need the hard data, it's there. If you need the, uh, if you need a, a quick, easy visual representation, visible representation, it's right here." Um, it's you know, if you're writing for a large audience uh, and you can't customize a book to be, you know, each reader reads this way, you need to to make it as easy for every reader to to get through it and still feel like. Uh, uh, you didn't dumb it down in a way that was insulting or get, came back with the wrong answer. So I wanted it as simple as possible, but not simpler to paraphrase Einstein. Let's dig down uh, and talk about the formula itself. Uh, how complex is it? Uh, was it hard for you guys to discover? Well, you know, what's the story behind the formula? Well, the uh, I'd like to say we went in thinking we'd find this formula, but but that isn't how it was at all. We were led down this path because of some discoveries that had happened by uh, uh, some colleagues. Uh, one of our, uh, there was a researcher who found that the relationship between how people divide their spending could actually be explained uh, as a function of how you rank something. And by rank, I mean, is it first, second, third? Uh, and it was, it was based on a... Uh, a natural law called Zipf's Law. It was discovered by a Harvard linguist a long time ago. And basically it said that the frequency of the use of a word is inversely related to its rank, meaning um, uh, the most frequently used word uh, would be, you know, have tons, and then there would be the second most, third most, and it followed this clear pattern. And they found that that pattern actually worked in a lot of things. It worked in... uh, uh, predicting earthquakes, internet usage, population density of cities, uh, and then they found it worked in market shares, and then later uh, how people divide their spending, what we call share of wallet. And so that told us that rank was going to be important, but it didn't tell us that we were going to, how, how we could make it simple. This law by this, this linguist was actually uh, complicated. And if you looked at the formula, most managers would go, I'm not going to do that. Uh, because it's not easily 
easily interpreted. But uh, so we just started asking some very basic questions, and it led us down a path that uh, I would say the discovery was basically an accident. We found that this relationship worked, and the first thing that the academic colleagues that were with us said is, there is no way this is right. And, and they were very serious. There's no way this is right because there's been at least 30 years of serious research on the same data we're looking at, and nobody's discovered this. So why would we come up with a very simple formula that works? And so lots of testing went on. Uh, we have, they, just, they just put us through our paces. So lots and lots of different studies, a lot of scientific papers um, to prove it worked because no one wanted to have egg on their face and come out and go, hey, I'm the discoverer of the wallet allocation rule. And they go, yeah, that's a big joke. <laughs> and, 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 and science is filled with people that have made discoveries that aren't real and then ultimately get blown up. So we didn't want to be one of them. And... Um, very, very happy that uh, they did put us through these spaces because we could, I feel very confident um, and uh, I like the fact that it's easy because if it was hard, nobody would do it. it this, led, this leads to very simple answers and something that uh, the organization can rally around. As I said before, nobody's going to rally around some complex statistical formula. They rally around things that they understand and the, the thing that's so easy about the wallet allocation rule is it says... We want to be number one. Everybody wants to be number one. So let's look at the percentage of, their, of our customers that truly consider us their first choice. Not they're tied, not, you know, not tied for first, but exclusively, we're the best. And I like that because everybody gets it from the CEO to the guys on the front line. As I like to say, there's nobody that goes to a football game with a foam finger that says we're number two. We, <laughs> we all know what it means to be number one, and it's something that, that's easy to uh, put, people, uh, put people rallying around. And the nice thing is it, it suddenly takes us out of this, this uh, distorted feeling that we get of, oh, everything's okay because our customer satisfaction numbers are so high. Well, they're not really that high. It turns out you're tied most of the time with your competing brands, which makes you a parity brand, which means you're not first choice with that brand. And so once you realize that I'm losing with these customers that I think I, that I thought I was winning with, uh, it, it forces you to think, what do I have to do to really, get, really be special for my customer? And uh, it, it's, uh, it's usually not what people think it is because it's usually about answering their need to use the competition. Until you can reduce their, uh, minimize their needs to use the competition, you never can grow their share. Because as much as they may like you, they still feel the need to go somewhere else. Well, also, too, that if you know what the, the thing that they go to the competition for, and it's just one thing out of all the things you do, you could also look at that and say, well, listen, let's just compete on price on this one thing and not have to compete on all these other things to weaken our competition. Well, yeah, it's usually, it's usually something like that. But, you know, it, it's, but what happens is people look at what, uh, what drives their satisfaction. And usually what drives your satisfaction is the thing that, that is your core differentiator. So I like to use the example of credit unions because almost everyone has a kind of a banking relationship. So they, in, in the U.S. and in Canada, credit unions are pretty powerful. Uh, and they also have very high satisfaction scores. So everybody says they love them. Yet everybody also uses a bank. 
which apparently they love less. And so why would you do that, right? Because credit, it turns out that when you, when you drew the drivers of satisfaction for a credit union, what you find is they say, well, you know, if you can reduce my complaints or you're better at resolving complaints, my satisfaction score goes up. And the answer is, of course it does. And, uh, the, but the next question I ask is, you know, how many people came to your credit union because you were really good at solving a problem you made for them? You know, it's zero. Nobody comes there because you're good at solving complaints. They come for a different reason. And when you start think about it in the wallet allocation framework, it forces you to understand why they came to you first. And they come to ba- credit unions largely because they don't have any fees. And banks have lots of fees. So no fees. Okay, well, that's still not the reason. They're, you know, you have no fees and you also pay higher interest rates on deposits and charge lower interest rates on loans. Why would they go anywhere else? Well, they have a reason to use a bank. And in the U.S., at least, the primary reason people use banks are access-related. And, and if you were just to pick the number one access issue, it's Internet banking. You can't, you can't function for, for most of society now without at least some access to the Internet for some banking, you know, whether it's bill pay or something. And so they use it for that. So credit unions have super high satisfaction. They're not going to win by trying to make them just happier. they got to make them happier by also reducing their need to use the competition. And that means you're going to have to improve access. You definitely have to improve Internet access, uh, your capabilities, if you're going to get them to consolidate more of their business with you. And that's really kind of, it's, it's a much more strategic way of thinking about how do I improve the customer experience? I improve the customer experience by giving them more of the, what they want uh, without changing kind of the the, the the brand that I am. I mean, credit unions can't suddenly become banks and become, you know, lose their friendly atmosphere and all that. But what they can do is say, I can offer that service uh, and, and bring that into my, my business and give you less reasons to go elsewhere. So really, I mean, for the, the wallet allocation rule to, to work for an organization, they really have to have a, a paradigm shift in the way they look at business. It's absolutely true. But, you know, what's funny is this paradigm shift is actually a shift back to the past. I mean, this, these are – when you look at the wallet allocation rule, we keep quoting Peter Drucker throughout the book. Peter Drucker, the father of modern management, who said these things so many years ago. He kept saying exactly what we're talking about. Really, we're coming back to the fundamentals of business strategy, and that is understand what my position is, understand what the customer needs so well – that the product or service fits that customer and sells itself, to quote Peter Drucker. And that's really what we're trying to do. And stop deluding ourselves in the sense of saying, focusing solely on uh, our, our own scores and ourselves. You know, it's like a basketball team that says, you know, could you imagine a coach go out there and says, my goal for you right now is to score 100 points today. Well, I'm not even sure what that means. You know, the goal is to win, <laughs> you know, whether you and, and you can win sometimes scoring a very low score as long as you can hold it, you know, or you can lose scoring a lot of points. You know, the reality is it's not about the score. It's about where do I place vis-a-vis the competitor. As long as I score more points in the competition with that customer, then I win regardless of what the absolute score is. Mm. How do people keep score? Ah, how do you keep score? Well, you know, the nice thing is the, the wallet allocation rule is we don't tell people to throw anything that they're currently doing away. 
you know, if you're already measuring satisfaction or a net promoter score or whatever, it still works. You just have to put it in a competitive context. So just imagine, Bob, for a second that you use three different brands and I ask you, you know, how satisfied are you with my brand on a scale of one to 10 and 10's the top, okay? And you say, it's a nine. Well, in every company in the world right now, a nine is a great score. Until I say, well, Bob, do you, you know, you, do you also use competition? And Bob says, yeah, I do. I, uh, and what do you think of the competition? Well, this one, I also give them a nine. And this other one, I give them a 10. Well, the problem now for me is, Bob, you've just made me tied for last. And the, <laughs> and the one that you're winning with, you're giving far more business to. You know, it only mat- that nine only matters if the other two are scoring less. So if you give the other one an eight and the other one a seven, well, now I'm winning. And I should be much happier with my life than that. So it's re- you know you keep score by using the same kind of systems you've always been using, but you convert them now to where do I rank vis-a-vis the competition, and that makes life easy. So you don't have to throw anything away. Your data is all there. You just have to expand slightly what you ask, and put it in a competitive framework. Because obviously, being satisfied, you know, you want satisfied customers who are willing to recommend the brand. I mean, that's obvious. But we need to make sure we understand. Where that where we actually place uh, with the other brand vis a vis the other brands that our customers are using. Mm. Well, you know that's fascinating because <clears throat> just thinking of like a, like a grocery store, I shop at three sometimes four grocery stores. The one that wins all the time is Safeway because it's the most convenient. Uh, it's the least amount of distance. I can walk to it, so I feel healthier walking there to pick up the groceries and walking back. They can fill up about 80% of what I need, but there's still 20% of my grocery products. I won't buy any fruit at Safeway because they do, uh, they're overpriced and the, their produce isn't great. Right next door, literally 50 feet away, is a small Chinese grocery store that has incredible uh, fruits, and I buy all my fruits there. So... That's basically a, a, a very simple example of exactly what you're talking about. It's like Safeway's winning, but they could be winning more by dropping their prices in fruits and providing me with better quality fruits. Exactly right. And, and that's, that example happens all the time. In fact, it sounds like my own life, except instead of a Chinese grocery, it's a, it's a Korean grocery. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, my, and my wife does the same thing. And, you know, it's... Uh, it would be so easy for the, the, uh, the big chain to pull this off. They just don't think about it that way because what they'll end up with, if they just focus on their own score and how they're doing, it never comes up. That's not what drove you to go to Safeway. So what ends up happening is convenience wins for Safeway all the time. Well, that, that's a tough one, right? You're never going <laughs> to – convenience is one of those very tough ones when you find that that's the primary reason because you can't tell the competition to build another store right next to it. But – but frequently it is about, you know, I don't have the item I really needed. And the nice thing for, the, uh, for that Chinese grocery store is they've, they've been able to win for, with you because they've been able to differentiate with higher quality, lower price produce that, that meets your needs. And so they're going to win consistently until Safeway in, in your market decides that they're going to play in that space. And right now they, haven't, they don't even know that that's the problem. Because that's not how they've been measuring it. Exactly. Well, and then also, as time goes by, I notice other products that are actually cheaper. Like I buy uh, chicken there because it's a buck cheaper. And so there, as time goes by, Safeway's losing more and more and more. And it, if they're not conscious of that, 
then I am less attached to, well, look, if I'm going here, maybe there's other deals I can go to. So I lose faith in Safeway is no longer a partner for me. It's just another large organization that's trying to take all my money. That's the worst scenario because then I'm going to try not to give any of my wallet money to Safeway, only on stuff that's on special, only the stuff that I really desperately need, and then I will spend a little bit of extra time in other places. So in the long run, it's a, it's a very scary situation for a larger organization. It is a very scary situation, and I love the way you've described this and, and it, because the nice thing about Share Wallet, is the reason that it works is because you're already shopping the competition, and therefore you see what is going on. And so, like you said, Suddenly, I notice I'm getting better deals on chicken. You'll notice better deals on other things. They start, you know, you get these what we call partial defections now, right? So your your wallet is suddenly starting to shift towards this other store that's going to get you anyway because it's a high produce quality store. They're already getting your business, and there's not a substitute for them right now. So now all they have to do is figure out what else can I, you know, can I price competitively or uh, offer that, that that Bob says this is what I need, and suddenly your wallet moves farther and farther away from the the big chain that was number one. So number one finds itself shifting in rank, and as soon as it finds itself shifting in rank, there will be a big shift in the amount of uh, business you give uh, to Safeway versus the competition. If by chance they're able to make that jump. Hmm. Uh, and that reminds me of what's happening right now with the internet and Amazon where they used to sell books and now they sell everything uh, and they're basically saying well you know what we've got amazing prices we've got uh, every product you could ever imagine if we don't have it just let us know we'll get it for you and then they're saying oh and by the way we're gonna do same-day delivery so now they're more convenient than Safeway They've got more products than Safeway, so I wouldn't even consider. I mean, all the department stores, Zellers, and and all the—they're just a horrible business platform to be in right now because of a company like Amazon coming along. Well, you know, Amazon has uh, really forced uh, brick-and-mortar retailers to uh, think differently because if they don't think differently, they're they're never going to win because. Uh, they're, they're, as you said, they're able to beat you on price if you're, uh, unless maybe you're Walmart. And only if you need to walk out with the item immediately do you, do, does the, uh, uh, the brick and mortar uh, have a win, like you said, especially if it's same-day service for groceries, right? It's, uh, it's an easy win. Um, I, 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 find that, uh, uh, I find it a very in, uh, unusual time to be a retailer. Uh, because they're uh, they're getting squeezed in lots of different ways, and the play and the plays are going to the guys who can either be ridiculously low price and and one stop shopping. So let's think Walmart, and that works for them because now you go in and you get everything. Not just you can buy groceries there, you can buy clothes there, you can buy baby items, whatever, or you go Amazon where you can just basically go and say this is the most convenient shop ever. And now they have a system for auto refill, right? So you say, I buy these items regularly. I don't like carrying them home. Just deliver them to the house. And I know because I did that. I mean, there is a special type of tea that I like, and the grocery would never have it. And I mean, I mean, bottles of tea. And I drink tons of it because it's uh, no sugar and it keeps my weight off. And I'm always happy about that. So they would just deliver it. 
And it would cost me the same as if I went to the grocery store to get it. Why would I not have them deliver it to my house instead of me having to carry it in? And uh, it was, it was, that's, that's, that, that they're, 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 again, they're finding ways to steal pieces of your business. These partial defections make a big difference. And ultimately, they become your first choice of where you shop because you know you're going to go there anyway. It's your Chinese grocery store again. You're going to go. There's no question you're going to go. And now they're giving you other things you can get. Yeah, and, and if they're studying what you're buying, then they can say, well, if this guy likes tea and it's, this is tea's known for this, then we might want to introduce a special, oh, well, look, we got this weight loss product that works amazingly well with this particular tea. That is a solution that you hadn't even realized. And you say, well, thank you. You know, you've made my life better. I will now buy that product. So it's one-on-one customer service. Exactly. And that's where you're having this mix now, you know, going back to your big data. It's a great piece. Now you can take the, the I know why, why you do what you do and how you feel about the brand. And I can also see things that complement the brand that you haven't even thought about because I'm watching you. Now that's when your data analysis becomes really relevant to making your experience better. And uh, it, it's all doable. That's what's so funny about it. We, it's all doable. We just don't do it. <laughs> yeah, the belief system. Yeah, I, I'm, there's so many things you got to do, you never get around to doing anything, and that's why you have no time to do anything. Exactly. Uh, where should people go to, to find out more about this book, or if they've read the book, to continue learning more about the wallet? Yeah, we, we've worked very hard to try to get, uh, put uh, our scientific papers and all the kinds of things that people may ask on, on our website at walletrule.com. And uh, if, that, if that's not there, just reach out to us we answer every email so if you have a question we will answer it uh but that's that's probably the simplest place to get information on the wallet allocation rule but again it links to all the scientific papers or many of them anyway and has all the faqs and quick start guides and things that you would ever need the wallet allocation rule winning the battle for share very 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 interesting book i highly recommend it uh thanks for coming on the show tim Bob, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show. And do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.